I've said this numerous times to people that the most terrifying thing about preaching, the thing that I find the most difficult, uh, the thing that I have the most anxiety over is not studying the passage, is not putting a message together, it's not standing up here for 30, 40 minutes and preaching it to you. It's coming up with a title. I get so stressed out when, when Al or Diane texts me or emails me, do you have a title for your message? It's, I find it so difficult to come up with this pithy little you know, one-sentence title compared to just writing you know, the whole message out. And so sometimes I come up with a title and I look at it and go, boy, that's really poor. That really doesn't reflect what I think I'm talking about. Uh, this time, though, Al asked me, and I think it was a couple of weeks ago he asked me, and I immediately came up with the title. <clears throat> Saying we believe in God, living like we don't. And I don't want to brag, but I think it's a pretty good title. I've looked at that title. I've been chewing on this passage for two weeks, maybe even three weeks. I think it was two weeks ago I came up with the title. And I've been chewing on it and thinking about that title. And it's bothered me ever since, even though I think it's a really good title. Because I feel so convicted by the title that I've put to the message. And I don't know how many of you have even noticed that that's what the title was for this morning. If you look at the emails that get sent out weekly, uh, the title is on it for the message, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Saying we believe in God, living like we don't. I don't know what comes to your mind. I don't know if you've seen that title, what you've been thinking this message might be about, or even just hearing it for the first time now, uh, how concerned you might be about this message. Saying that we believe in God, but living like we don't. What's Brent going to speak on? Like, is this going to be about some area in my life that is a dark secret? An area of darkness? Uh, a sinful habit that I would hate for everyone to know at Auburn that that's something that I struggle with. It's something that I have hidden in the closet so well for so long, and now, boom, we're going to be talking about it on a Sunday morning. But maybe it would make you feel a little bit more comfortable if you knew that as we're continuing in our passage on James, what James is going to focus on in our verses this morning is those who plan for the future. <sighs> you can relax a little bit. It doesn't sound so intimidating. And yet, as I said, I've chewed on this passage for the last couple of weeks. And I can think of few passages that I've had to preach on over 40 years now, I guess that has left me feeling as convicted as this passage does. A passage that is so relevant and so practical, and I think you're all going to find that this morning. At least that's my goal in preaching this passage this morning. Numerous commentators talking about this passage, and we're, we're going to be looking at James 4, verses 13 to 17. If you've got your pew Bible in front of you, page 979. If you've got your own Bible, great. Open it up to James, comes after Hebrews. If you're using your phone, uh, you can look it up now. We're going to be mainly just sticking to those verses this morning. So Hebrews 4, 13 uh, through 17. And numerous commentators on this passage suggested that what James is going to be talking about is one of the greatest 
sicknesses to rear its ugly head in the Christian community. Some have referred to it as practical atheism. Saying that you believe in God, but living like you don't. Charles Swindle refers to it as playing God. No matter what we profess about God, we live life like we're God ourselves. We have the final authority. We have the final say. We're the masters of our own destiny. We may say that we believe in God, but we live like we don't. And I get it, that sounds extreme. That sounds extreme to say that that's what we would think and that that's what we would say. But at a minimum, I think a lot of us are guilty at times of putting God into a tiny box and placing Him into a room at the back of our life and leaving Him there and only pulling Him out when it's absolutely necessary. And I understand, not one person in here is going to admit that we've put God in a box put God in a box and stuck him in the back room. We're not going to admit it. But I think it's probably fair to say that some of us anyways look at our life, if we were to look at our life, we would say that there are things that we relegate to God's authority. Like spiritual issues, ethical issues, moral issues, international conflicts. That's God's area. But when it comes to finances or career, or education, or possessions, or or entertainment, or relationships, or our plans for the future. We like to keep our hands in the mix. We like to have a say. In some of those areas, we want to be the authority. And I challenge you to look at your life. Look at where you were at right now where you've come from, where you're at, what's your aspirations for the future, where you are educationally, career-wise, possession-wise, financially. Who has been the master of your destiny? Who has called the shots? And we might say, but, but Brent... The, me, the, the meaningless things in life, the mundane things, surely God isn't really interested in those things. As long as I tell him that he has my heart. And it's to this perverted outlook on life that James calls in this passage for an abrupt halt. Who are we as children of God to live in such a way? We have sang so many songs this morning that talk about the greatness of God. Al has reminded us of what God has done for us through Jesus. Who were we to think that we call the shots? And so in our passage this morning, James is going to show us how we can put a stop to this self-centered living. This saying that we believe in God, but living in many areas or aspects of our life is if we don't. 
And so let's take a look at what James has to say. James 4, 13 through 17, again, page 979 in your pew Bible. James writes, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. So you've got to notice one thing as we begin our passage this morning. If you remember a few weeks back when we looked at the last passage in James, there is a change in tone. The last time we looked at James, it was, dear brothers and sisters, James's tone has changed. Uh, it's, it's brusque. Uh, it's admonishing. What he's literally saying is, hey you, listen up and pay attention. James is going to put words into the mouth of the reader to show them what their attitude and resulting behavior really look like. And what James wants the readers then and for us to understand it, it's not worthy of who we are to have this kind of attitude and resulting behavior when it comes to planning our life. And so the tone of James is kind of like a parent who is rebuking their child because they're behaving in such a way that's not in keeping with the family name. I've shared that from the platform before when I have told my children when they go out the door, remember who you are, right? You're a Mackie. You represent our family. Don't do things that are going to bring a bad name to our household name. And to a greater extent, you are a child of the king. You represent God and his kingdom. So make sure that your attitude and the way that you behave is in keeping, is worthy of who you are. And so James carries on in verse 13 to show them this attitude and this resulting behavior. And yet as you read verse 13, I got to admit at first glance, I'm not sure what's wrong with what this person is doing. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Sounds like a good plan maker. It looks like they've covered all the bases. They, they even are predicting success. What can possibly be wrong? And some have asked that question and have given in to wrong interpretations. Well, what James is saying is that capitalism is wrong. Making a profit, that is what James is pointing. And, and people will write books that that's what James is meaning here. But I don't think that's what James is talking about. Others would suggest, well, the problem is making plans. As a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't make plans. It, it's spiritual to live passively and just let life come at you. To make plans... That's presumptuous. And yet if you look through Scripture, you see in Proverbs that 
It's wise people who make plans. The planning for the future is good stewardship. Paul was always making plans. In the Old Testament, people were, were um, approved because of the plans that they made. So what is the problem with the plan? There's nothing wrong with making plans in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with making a profit in and of themselves. Here's the problem. This plan maker has all the questions answered except one. What, when, why, where, they're all covered in verse 13. The one that's missing is who? There's no mention of God. And we see this in the context of the other verses that we're going to look at. There's no mention of God. There's there's no concern for God's counsel. There's no consideration of God in their plans. There's no concern for God's glory, God's honor, for, for, for the service of God. And what a rebuke. James's readers would have known exactly who James was specifically referring to. It was the Christian merchant class. And back then, what a merchant would do is they would buy a bunch of goods and products where they begin, and they would move to a faraway town or land, and they would sell those things, and then take the money that they earn from that, buy some stuff from that faraway land, and move to another distant, faraway land, and they would sell the products and the goods. They would buy more products and goods and move to another land and sell them and make a profit and keep making profits, keep doing this cycle until they got to the point where they had made enough profit that they could move back home and live comfortably. And once the money started running out, they did it again, bought more goods and went on this journey. And maybe as you hear this, you go, wow, I'm so glad James isn't talking to me. My life has nothing to do with being a merchant. Problem for me is it really talks a lot about what I do for my career. But it's practical and relevant for all of us. Because the problem is that in their plans, they didn't consider God. God is nowhere to be seen in their plans. And you might be a university student here this morning. You might be a single. You might be just beginning your career. You might be a young married couple with a young child. You might be middle-aged. You might be elderly. And you're, you've planned for the future as, as a young married couple with a young child. You're planning on how many kids you want to have, where you want to move, where you want them to go to school. You might be in university and you've figured out how you got into university and you're, you're choosing your career path and where you want to be in life. And the question that James would ask is, have you considered God in your plans? Who's calling the shots? Who's the final authority? And James would say, it's unbecoming of a follower of Jesus to live as if they are masters of their own destiny. I came across this um, quote from Kent Hughes. He writes, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many Christians attend church 
marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reverence to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family direction, or entertainments than actually seek God's will. St. Augustine used to say, love God and do as you please, because if you truly love God, you'll want to do what pleases Him. Many of us have changed that to do as you please and say that you love God. I found that quote so, so convicting. So verse 13, we see the problem. Making all these plans with no consideration of God. Obviously, we don't want to stay there. So how can we stop this self-centered way of living? Well, in verse 14, James begins to answer the question. And like so many life changes, what's required is that we acknowledge and admit some realities. So last week we were talking about salvation as we kind of did a little tour through Romans. Right? We get to the point where we ask Jesus to forgive us our sins and, and we ask him to be our Savior and our Lord. But there are things, there's realities and, and truths that we have to admit before we get to that stage. Like we realize that we are a sinner. That on our own, we can't have a right standing with God because there's a problem of sin. God can't allow sin into his presence. We recognize the fact that there's nothing that we can do about it. As hard as we may try, we can't solve the problem and consequence of sin. And so we come to an acknowledgement and an admittance that we need help. We need Jesus and what he has done for us. And it's based on those acknowledgements, those confessions, those things that we admit, we come to this point where we bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. And the same is true here. If we're going to put a halt to self-centered living, James tells us it involves recognizing and admitting a few realities. And that's what he says in verse 14. He says, why you? And other translations actually expand on what James says in the original Greek. He says, why people like you? He's bringing his readers to reality of the kind of people that they are. Why people like you? Why would you expect to be able to be masters of your own destiny? And in verses 14 and 15, he gives three reasons or three things, three realities that we need to acknowledge that will answer the question, well, we can't be masters of our own destiny, not very successfully. And in verse 14, we see two of them, the uncertainty of life and the brevity of life. Let's read verse 14 again. Why you do not, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So in the first part of verse 14, James says, as mere mortal humans, we have no idea what the future will bring. We don't know what this afternoon will bring. We have no certainty about what tomorrow will bring, let alone two years from now. Some of us could die tomorrow. Some of us will live till we're 90 and a bunch of us in between. 
We all know that it just takes one rude interruption to alter and sometimes blow up the best made plans. We can't even be certain if plans that we have tried so hard to put together are actually going to be successful or not. And we probably all could come up here this morning and share horrific stories of plans gone wrong. We can't see around the next corner. We have no idea. But God can. Only God knows the future. Can have confidence that he knows the future. Only God knows what is best for us. And what James would tell us is it's foolish to not seek his guidance and and his counsel and his wisdom. And so first realization, first reality is that the future is uncertain. We, We can have no certainty of what the future will hold. And then the second thing he says in verse 14 is life is short. He's not just talking about someone that may die early and we'd say, we would say, oh, it's so unfortunate that that person died too soon. He, he could be talking about a 90-year-old as well. I mean, how many elderly people do you know who will tell you that I'm 90 years old, but it seems like just yesterday I was this or that? Because time flies by. Life is short. James describes our life like a mist or a vapor that appears suddenly and then just as quickly vanishes. Kind of uh, for us driving from Pontypool into Peterborough some mornings where the fog is so thick and yet within an hour or two it's gone. And that's how James describes a human life. Which makes me wonder why and maybe you've had this experience before when you're, you're, you're sharing Jesus with someone and they say, you know what, I, 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 I'm interested in Jesus, but, but not right yet. You know, maybe in a little while I'll consider it again. And, and there are those who profess to be followers of Jesus and yet they know they're not living the kind of life that God would want them to live. And they say, I know that. I'll get serious about my commitment in a while. You can't be certain of what the future holds. And human life is short. You put those two things together and that's scary. And the first error in this notion is that living a life committed to Jesus and living how he would want us to live is a second choice. Because to me, the most peaceful, joyful, rich people who who are alive and I get to meet are those who are in committed relationships with Jesus. But the second error is that we don't know what the future holds. And so why risk, why gamble on eternity? Whether it's as a non-Christian or as a Christian who's just waiting to get serious about the commitment they made to Jesus. So in verse 14, two realities. The uncertainty of life and the shortness or the brevity of life. And then in verse 15, we're introduced to a third reality. And that is the supremacy of God's will. And in verse 15, James writes... Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And so the third thing that we have to realize is the supremacy 
of God's will. And this, this brings in the topic of the sovereignty of God. And that could be a sermon series in and of itself. And we're not going to take a whole lot of time. So let me summarize it in a couple of, couple of sentences. The Bible makes it very clear God's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's outside of time. He's responsible for the creation of all things. Nothing happens that happens without his permission or his approval. At any time, he can alter or change anything. That's one side of the coin of his sovereignty. On the flip side of that is that he's allowed humans to, to make choices. He's allowed sin to run its course. He holds humanity responsible for the consequences of their choice of sin. All right, so you've got this huge topic concerning the sovereignty of God. And what James wants us to understand is that the greatest factor in humbling our plan making is the sovereignty of God. Because the truth is, our life, our possessions our future, our health, everything about us is in the hands of God. And it's his will that's supreme, not ours. And so if you're going to put a halt to self-centered living, you've got to admit and acknowledge these three things. The uncertainty of the future, the brevity of life, and the supremacy of God's will. And then in verse 15, after introducing the will of the Lord, James tells us the solution, the corrective, the qualifier. He explains how verse 13 would be fine. It's aligning ourselves with the will of the Lord. Because you read verse 13, if this, read, if this person who James is putting the words in the mouth of said, you know, if it be the Lord's will, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city and that city and we're going to conduct business and we're going to stay there for about a year and we're going to make a profit. There wouldn't be a problem. You see Paul doing that all the time. He says, here's my missionary plan. This is what we're going to do. If it's the Lord's will. And that's the corrective. Aligning ourselves with God's will. Making it a practice to say those two words, Lord willing. And I get it. I've grown up in the church. I've been 59 years now. I hear everyone praying and then they say, if it be the Lord's will. I hear people announcing a men's breakfast, Lord willing. Summer camp, Lord willing. Sometimes it sounds like it's superstitious. Sometimes it's just a cliche. Sometimes it just becomes meaningless words and we say it because we don't want to sound presumptuous and, or we say it because we want to sound really spiritual. And they can become just meaningless words, but obviously that's not James' intent. Aligning ourselves with the Lord's will. Making sure that when we make plans, whatever they might be, we're saying, Lord willing, it's an expression of a changed attitude. It's an expression of an orientation of life. It's an expression of our soul dependence upon God and his will. It's an expression of us humbly submitting to God as Lord of our life because he deserves to be. That's why I had the praise team read from Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Do you realize who it is that we have committed our life to? 
Holy, holy, holy. The one seated upon a throne. The one who is, is worthy to open the scroll. That's who we've committed our life to. That's whose will we are aligned to, our, to align our life with. And so the million dollar question is how? If the sovereignty of God could be a sermon series, so could God's will. In fact, many Christians go through their whole life confused with God's will. I mean, if God would only uh, make it more clear, easier to understand, if he could just put his will for my life in a book. He did! And in the, in, in the, this is one of my favorite Bibles I like to use. And in the front of my Bible, I actually have written down this five-point thing that I stole from somebody. I'm not even sure who it was. And it says, how can we align ourselves with God's will? And, and let me just go through these five points with you. And don't worry, I'm just going to read them here. First of all, we need to submit our plans to the word of God. Does what I'm intending fall within the framework of God's expressed will? Are we seeking the godly counsel of those who understand God's expressed will, who studied it? I'm amazed at how many Christians get confused with what God would want them to do and to do, and yet don't spend any time in his word. Because I can guarantee you most of the answers to your questions, even specific questions about God's will, can be found in God's word. When you understand what his will for you is, his will for you is to be holy. To live a life that's pleasing to him. To seek his approval, not the world's approval. Just those three principles probably can answer most of the, the, the detailed questions we may have about God's will. The second thing here is invite God's involvement from the very start. I, as a child, I had this plaque on my bedroom wall. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. From the very beginning, seek God's involvement in whatever it is that you might be planning. Third thing, seek God's interest first in all of our plans. You know, this whole idea that we often are seeking God to endorse the plans that we've put together. When God, what he really wants is us to want what he wants. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. Fourthly, keep praying and seek, seek God's guidance through all stages. Seek God's wisdom. And then finally, bow to God's providence and sovereign rule. And if you've done these first four things, you've, you've submitted yourself to God's expressed will found in Scripture. You've invited God's involvement from the very start. You've, you've seeked first God's interests. You've kept praying and seeking God's guidance through all, uh, all the stages. You can have confidence that, to leave things in God's hand. And accept the outcome, knowing that at any time God can, can fine-tune the plan, He can alter the plan, uh, He can scribble right over the plan and totally change it. But, but, but that's just a five-step approach, how we can align ourselves to God's will. And, and that's what James says that we need to do. Stop living 
in a self-centered, self-obsessed, self-sufficient, self-confident way, but instead submit yourself humbly and wholly to God and his will for your life. The passage ends in verses 16 and 17. with James kind of giving us the alternatives, the consequences. So here's what you need to understand, and here's what you need to do. But if you don't do it, here's the reality. In verse 16, it says, As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And what James is telling us is the alternative to aligning yourself with God's will is evil, arrogant, boasting. Because what you're telling God is, I know what you want me to do, but I don't want to do it because I know better, and it's better if I be the master of my own destiny. And in verse 17, there's a second consequence. Verse 17 So then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. Remember last week before communion, I shared Allison's favorite phrase, if you know better, you do better. Little do we know James also shares a little bit of that phrase. And what James says here, if you know better and you don't do better, you sin. Because a sin of omission is just as severe as a sin of commission. And he's made it very clear for us in this passage what we need to do. And if you choose not to do it, if you choose to continue to call your own shots, make your own plans to be your own authority, what James is saying is you're sinning. You're an arrogant boaster and you're a sinner. He's not really hiding how he feels. So there's been a lot to cover this morning. A lot to make you think. A lot that I've been thinking about over these last couple of weeks. And, and I was thinking about it this morning. I realized that as I look out this morning, there is a bunch of different categories of people that are represented here. There's a lot of us that just live life day by day. We take the punches as they come. But boy, life flies by. I, I often say that to people that I, I do business with. I start the week off with emails, happy Monday, and it seems like the next day it's happy Friday and we're doing it all over again. The weeks just fly by. And some of you are here this morning and you know that you need to get serious with God. Maybe for the first time or the life that you're living, professing to be a follower of him, but you keep putting it off. James would say, now is the day to deal with it. Don't let another day go by that you don't get serious with Jesus. There's some of you here this morning and the title really has resonated because you recognize the fact that you profess to believe, but boy, if people looked at your life, my life, the way we live, the decisions we make, it sure doesn't look like we believe in God. We need to get serious about the things that James says. My guess is there's a bunch of people here, though. You kind of fall in the uh, middle category. 
you really want to align your life with God's will. You try hard to. But you know there's areas that God's still in the back room in the little box. And I just leave you with a couple of questions. What are those areas in your life that you tend to hold for yourself? Give them to God. What are some decisions you've made recently where you know that you have not given God any consideration? Go back and talk to God about those plans. What future decisions are coming up that you can include God's will as you make your decisions? I'd encourage you to do so. I've asked the praise team to to sing a very specific song as we close uh, this morning. I guess there's going to be a couple of songs, but the first song after the sermon. And be serious when you sing these words. Sing them as a prayer. A, A prayer of commitment, consecration, submission. And again, if there's anyone here this morning and you know you've got to get serious with God and you never have, that, that's why we're here. Anyone that you've seen at the front, uh, please come to us and, and talk to us. Don't leave without, without dealing with it today. Uh, anyways, praise to you. Lead us in this uh, song, if you would.